This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Dr. King often said that doctrine is secondary, it's peripheral, that love is the center of the Christian faith. Love means that I respect and love all people irrespective of their faith, their religion. He talked a lot about applied Christianity, a practical Christianity, embodying the love ethic in our relationship to other people. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to welcome to our program Louis V. Baldwin. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books, including There is a Balm in Gilead, The Cultural Roots of Martin Luther King Jr., To Make the Wounded Whole, The Cultural Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., and Never to Leave Us Alone, The Prayer Life of Martin Luther King Jr. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King Jr., Professor Louis V. Baldwin, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place, and it's with a quotation from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He says at one point that in some marvelous way, the greatest Christian of the modern world is a man who never embraced Christianity. I want to start there because I want you to tell us about that quotation. Who was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talking about, and how do we understand it to mean that the greatest Christian of the modern world was never a Christian? Yes, he was talking about Mohandas K. Gandhi there, who, as you well know, was a Hindu, the leader of the Indian independence struggle against British colonialism, And King read Gandhi at Crozer Theological Seminary in the early 50s, and he was fascinated by Gandhi's focus on love, Satyagrahara. And he felt that Gandhi was the first to translate the love ethic into a practical movement for freedom and independence. And then that for him was the ideal Christian practice, nonviolence. And he felt that Gandhi embodied that to the fullest. And although Gandhi was a Hindu in belief and practice, according to King, he was the greatest Christian to live in the 20th century. Now, Professor Baldwin, you've already given us some concepts there that I want to unpack. First of all, 
You mentioned this idea of the love ethic. Can you tell us what yeah. that means and what that meant to Reverend Dr. King? Well, Dr. King spoke of love in the Greek terminology. He spoke of uh, eros, romantic love, philia, brotherly love. But he said the highest form of love is agape, understanding goodwill toward all people. And he felt that Gandhi embodied this Christian agape love ethic. Agape is the highest form of love. And Dr. King said, when we reach that form of love, of course, we understand that we are to love all humans, irrespective of race, nationality, political persuasion, whatever. The important thing is to love unconditionally and to love freely. Now, if I've heard you correctly, you broke apart love there into several different types. You talked about Eros love and filial love, and then you said the highest form is agape love, and you said that that kind of love is goodwill toward all people. I just want to make sure, first of all, have I understood that correctly? And you, underst you, you understand that correctly, and of course, Dr. King argued that agape love is translated into a movement, which says that I am my brother's keeper, and if he's wrong, I'm willing to suffer and even die to make him follow the right path. So agape love is not only about ideals, it's about the kind of love that is translated into a movement for freedom, justice, peace, and human dignity. And Professor Baldwin, I'm so grateful for you now connecting this to the movement because that was the other thing I wanted to circle back to. And it was this matter of practicality and making something practical. Can you help my listeners understand what it means to take something from the theoretical and to make it into a practical action? Yes, Dr. King talked about love from the standpoint of ideals and spoken words. But he also said, and I learned this from him, that love is also about a way of living and acting in the world. When I grew up in the South, the, my elders used to talk about practicing what you preach. And this is essentially what Dr. King had in mind. That to talk about love is one thing. To study love at the level of ideals is one thing. But to practice love, to apply it, to live the love ethic. And this is what Dr. King did. He saw nonviolence as the way of love. He talked a lot about pursuing the truthful means of nonviolent direct action to achieve the truthful ends of the beloved community. So this is what he had in mind, essentially. And I want my listeners to track that we are now connecting these preliminary pieces that we're putting in place, the idea of the love ethic, the idea of practical movement, connecting it now to this idea of truth. And this is the preoccupation of your book, The Ark of Truth, because in every chapter of the six chapters that you lay out for the reader, you are saying, and here's another way in which truth was central to the activity, to the thought, and to the nonviolent action of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Talk to us a little bit. Just help us set the stage. When we're talking about truth, what kind of truth was Reverend Dr. King talking about? He was talking about truth that finds expression not only in nonviolent action, but truth that finds expression in love. And justice. He saw love and justice as sal salient expressions of truth. And he also related truth to freedom. He quoted Jesus quite a bit. The truth will set you free. 
So he was able to relate freedom to love and justice and peace. These are expressions of love, forgiveness, reconciliation, community, all expressions of truth. Let me take just a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Louis V. Baldwin. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. We're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. So I want to begin to unpack now this notion of truth, because one of the things that you said in the midst of defining how truth functioned for the Reverend Dr. King, you said it was connected to love and to justice and to freedom and to forgiveness, but you also used this phrase, it involves being your brother's keeper. And I I think that for some people, they may have a misapprehension of truth, that truth means no responsibilities to other people. Truth means you get to do your thing, man, and I get to do my thing, and if you want to kill yourself, that's fine, and I'm going to be fine over here with my—but what I'm hearing you saying is that's not how Dr. King understood truth, that truth was an obligation to the other, not a sort of— leaving the other to their own fate. Do I understand that correctly, or would you say it in a different way? You're quite right. The other is always important. Dr. King said, truth means that I can never be what I ought to be until you are who you ought to be. And it means that you cannot be who you ought to be until I am who I ought to be. So the other is always important in his understanding of truth. It extends beyond self to the other always. And so if I'm understanding that correctly, my becoming fully myself is dependent on you becoming fully yourself, the person down the street becoming fully themselves. Do I understand? So, so it's about everyone basically coming into their own, to their fullness, to their actualization. Do I understand that correctly? That is, you're quite right. This is what he meant by the interrelated structure of all reality, uh, that we are connected to each other. We are dependent upon each other. So you're quite correct in that regard. Now, Professor Baldwin, I apologize. I'm going to now embody a kind of devil's advocate here because some people in our political landscape will push back and say, well, Professor Baldwin, Dr. King, this all sounds well and good, but it's got to stop somewhere, right? I can't be obligated to everybody. And so what's the limit of this making sure that everyone around me is actualized? Do I need to make sure that my my family is actualized? Sure. Do I need to make sure my neighbor is actualized? Sure. But the homeless guy down the street? No way. My enemy across the border? No way. How would you respond? How would Dr. King respond to that? Again, the other is always important. It includes family, it includes relatives and friends, but it also includes the homeless guy. It includes people in other countries and other nations. So the other is always important. Dr. King talking talked a lot about moving beyond this idea of self-preservation as the first law of life to other preservation as the first law of life. He made that point in his book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? And he stressed that point quite well in that chapter six of that book. Well, so this is tremendous. And I'm we're going to dig into all of this as our conversation continues. But as we're continuing to set the stage here. So there are those who would look at Reverend Dr. King and say, you're going too far. You are asking too much. And King's answer is we have not yet asked enough. We have not yet done enough. And so there is a fundamental, if I'm understanding it, a fundamental friction, a fundamental conflict 
and forgive me for using that word, between uh, one way that people think about truth, truth is mine, and, if, and you do your thing, and if I'm understanding it, King would say, no, I have a truth, you have a truth, but undergirding that truth is love, and love is the ultimate truth. And if we're fully understanding that, then we cannot say that you are separate from me. We cannot say that my neighbor, my enemy, those across the border are separate from me. Now, these are all my words, not yours. But am I understanding correctly as we're laying the groundwork how this operates and how love is connected to truth as a kind of undergirding of all of this? Well put. You put it exactly as Dr. King saw it and as he taught and as he understood it. You can't separate in King's understanding love from truth, reconciliation from truth, justice from truth, freedom from truth. When he talked about the highest good of the sonum bonum of life, he was talking about truth and love. The arc of the moral universe is always swinging in that direction, in the direction of truth, in the direction of love, in the direction of freedom and justice and human dignity. So you can't separate these components of truth. Now, Professor Baldwin, to bring this back to where we began our conversation, when Dr. King looks at Mohandas K. Gandhi and says this was the greatest modern Christian, even though he wasn't a Christian, What I'm hearing you saying is that when Dr. King was talking about truth, he wasn't necessarily talking about adherence to a doctrine or adherence to a creed. He was talking about something that went deeper than that and that was maybe universal beyond these divisions. Now, these are my words. Would you say it in a different way, or how would you say it? You're quite right. And he was talking about something that extends beyond religion, because, you you know, as you well know, Dr. King felt that there are truths in all religions. In fact, he often said that there are more truths in all religions combined than there is in any one religion. So he was talking about something universal, something uh, inclusive. And this was his understanding of truth, that it extends beyond all creeds and all doctrines and truth as whole in Hegelian terms, he said, extends beyond creeds, doctrine, religions. It is universal. So... When we're talking about this kind of universality, and when we're talking about something that transcends religion and doctrines and creeds, I think that might make some people uncomfortable, and it might make them think, well, is it really that Dr. King understood Christianity? Because from their viewpoint, Christianity is all about saying the right creed or doing the right sort of thing, and it's about being different from the Hindu, the Muslim, the Jew. So help me understand how Dr. King understood his Christianity. When we say that he was a Christian, but he believed that his truth and his love transcended his creeds as a Christian, help me to square that circle. Yes, Dr. King often said that doctrine is secondary, is peripheral, that love is the center of the Christian faith. Love means that I respect and love all people irrespective of their faith, their religion. And this is the way he thought. So the universality of the love ethic is central to Christianity for Dr. King. He didn't talk a lot about doctrinal Christianity or missionary Christianity, but he talked a lot about applied Christianity, a practical Christianity, which has to do with embodying the love ethic in our relationship to other people, each other, other people. 
So uh, the love ethic was central for him to the Christian faith. He was not, and you well know, a biblical fundamentalist. He was very much a theological liberal. So he didn't talk a lot about doctrines, even though they were important. He didn't talk a lot about missionary Christianity or doctrinal Christianity. But what mattered most was practical or applied Christianity, which means that the love ethic becomes central. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Louis V. Baldwin. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of several books about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We're talking about his most recent one, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying our conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Louis V. Baldwin. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books dealing with the thought and life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King, Jr. Well, as I was reading through your book, The Ark of Truth, there were several aspects of the development of Martin Luther King's thought that I had never known about before that surprised me and delighted me. One of the things that was most surprising and most delightful was your claim that the favorite philosopher of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was George Wilhelm hey. Frederick Hegel. Hey, yeah. Tell us, give us just a brief overview of Hegel's philosophical thought. And then we'll talk about why he was important to Dr. King. When Dr. King studied Hegel at Mohouse College and also to some extent at Crozer Seminary in North and Boston University, and he was very much concerned about the Hegelian dialectic, is that truth is the whole that he talked about, for an example, this uh, Hegelian dialectic included what the thesis, the antithesis, and you bring together the partial truths of both into a synthesis or into an intelligible whole. For an example, he argued that nonviolence is a combination. You take violence, for an example, as the antithesis, acquiescence as the thesis, and the emergent synthesis would be nonviolent direct action. The nonviolent act of is much like the violent act in the sense that he resists, though not violently. And of course, like the uh, person who embraces acquiescence in the sense that the nonviolent resistor is open to dialogue, negotiation, etc. So he argued that Hegel provided the best means for attaining truth. That truth is always what? Moving from thesis, antithesis, 
and combining the truths, the partial truths of both into what? An intelligible whole or a synthesis. And this is why Dr. King felt that Hegel was so important in his pursuit of truth. Now, Professor Baldwin, I want to make sure that I've understood you correctly because you've just said something that has rocked some of my presuppositions. Before Mm -hmm. listening to you just now, I think I would have said that violence and nonviolence were opposites. But what I heard you say instead, that a kind of passive acquiescence is the opposite of violence. And that, that if you begin to put these two things together into that Hegelian synthesis of thesis, and antithesis and synthesis, yeah. that you will get something new out of it. And that new thing is nonviolence. Nonviolent direct action. And so nonviolent direct action isn't passive, but it's also not violent. It is something that brings together aspects of both of those other two. Now, first of all, yeah. have I understood this correctly? You understood that correctly. Dr. King said we are as active as the violent resistor, but we are active in a nonviolent way. We are willing, as the person who embraces acquiescence, to negotiate and to come to some agreement through conversation, etc. So you pull the partial truths from both the violent resistor and the person who embraces acquiescence and bring them together into an intelligible whole, the partial truths of both. And of course, the result in synthesis is nonviolent direct action. Now, I keep hearing you use this phrase, the partial truths, and so I want to make sure I've understood this too. When we go through this movement of the Hegelian dialectic with a partial truth and a partial truth becoming uh, a synthesis, is the synthesis then more true than those initial partial truths? Exactly, exactly. Because the violent resistor, you reject the violence, but you accept the fact that he's willing to resist. And the same thing with the, well, a different uh, matter, of course, with the person who embraces acquiescence. You reject the passive acceptance, but you also embrace the willingness to negotiate. So Dr. King was talking about pulling the partial truths from acquiescence and violence to what? Create that synthesis of nonviolent direct action. Now, as I'm hearing you explain all this, you're helping me understand a phrase that both Dr. King and I believe Mohandas Gandhi both used, this idea of experimenting with truth. Now, when I connect experiments with truth to this notion of the dialectic, is that a proper connection or have I missed something? Yeah, that's a proper connection because Gandhi himself made that connection as well. He talked a lot about, if you know, the violent resistor, you don't embrace the violence, but you embrace the willingness to resist. And with the the person who embraces acquiescence, you don't embrace the passive acceptance, but you do embrace the willingness to negotiate. And of course, you bring those together into this intelligible whole that I was talking about. And experimenting with truth, this is a part of what that's about. Because King and Gandhi were constantly trying to understand not only the meaning of truth, expressions of truth, but how to translate truth into a movement to empower and liberate people. And this is why King said in Albany in 1961, he was actually quoting Gandhi, we are engaged in experiments with truth. We are learning every day as we what? As we practice nonviolence, as we relate the love ethic to nonviolent practice. And this is what he had in mind. 
Now, Professor Baldwin, as I hear you explaining this, I'm thinking about what we said in the first segment about truth ultimately being connected to love. So let me make sure that I've got these pieces in place. So I am a person who maybe started in a place of passive acquiescence. I come up against a system that wishes to do me violence, and I can either choose to stay in acquiescence or I can synthesize that into a different way of addressing that violent system. I choose instead King Gandhi's path of nonviolence, which takes my willingness to negotiate and puts it against the violent person's willingness to struggle and brings something new into that moment. And now I'm struggling against that violent system. But if I'm understanding this correctly, in the process, I'm not making that violent person my enemy, but I'm inviting that violent person into my love. Is that correct? Yes, and you're also respecting the willingness of the violent person to resist, at least resist a system of evil. You don't agree with the violent resistance, but you do agree with the willingness and the capacity of that person to resist evil in some way, though you do not accept the violence. So when we're doing this, what I'm thinking of right now is a phrase from the Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann, where he talks about the Mm -hmm. prophetic imagination. And I'm wondering, is this a moment where I'm inviting that person who is committed to violence to imagine something differently? Would that be correct? Absolutely. And also the person who embraces acquiescence to get them to realize that resistance is important, but you must, and non-cooperation with evil is always important, but you must resist and non-cooperate in the spirit of nonviolence. And in doing that, it's plain, and I'm thinking now of Bull Connor, it's plain that will simply, in some cases, anger the violent system to the point of lashing out. And is that something that is desirable, or is nonviolence trying to keep the violent system from lashing out? Nonviolence is designed to expose that system. Dr. King made that quite clear in Birmingham in 1963, for example. He said, we we are really about exposing the evils that exist within the system, bringing it out into the open so people will be able to see it and to deal with it. So this is what nonviolence was about, exposing the evils and making them evident to the public square. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted today to be speaking with Louis V. Baldwin. He's Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books dealing with the life and thinking of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King, Jr. Well, we've been talking about a kind of synthetic truth, a kind of process where we take a partial truth and get it built into a greater truth and keep moving it forward. But I'm struck that also in your book, The Ark of Truth, you make the claim at several points that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was committed to an idea that truth is objective. Help me understand, because I'm feeling a little bit of tension between the idea that there's an objective truth sitting out there and this synthetic Hegelian idea of truth that we're constantly building the truth along the way. How did he put these two, what seemed to me to be disparate ideas together and make them work in a system for himself? Well, for him, they were not disparate ideas so much. He felt that when you embrace the Hegelian concept of truth as the whole, you're really talking about objective truth. Objective truths are truths that are 
embraced universally, that uh, that comport with reality, that are not open to question. Dr. King often said that hate is wrong. This is true. You know, it, it, it always will be true. He believed that there are certain eternal, immutable principles in the universe. And of course, truth is one of them. So when you talk about truth as the whole in Hegelian terms, you're talking essentially about objective truth. Because we're talking about truth that is not subject to be questioned, truth that is embraced and understood on a universal level. I think all people, Dr. King would say, believe that hatred is wrong, that racism is wrong, that economic injustice is wrong. And these are truths that people embrace universally. So this is very helpful to me, but I'm also mindful at one point, you start off, I think, the third chapter in your book, The Ark of Truth, talking about the relationship of Reverend Dr. King to the thinking of Thomas Jefferson. And in particular, Thomas Jefferson believing that certain truths were self-evident. This is the language, of course, of the Declaration of Independence. It gets built in some ways into the Bill of Rights. But I, I was struck at that moment as I was reading this portion of your book about how Dr. King was engaging with the thought of Thomas Jefferson. And what was still in the back of my mind was, but at the same time that Jefferson was writing these lofty words, Jefferson was also a slave owner. And Dr. King made that point. He talked about the ambivalent nation how the founding fathers who wrote Declaration of Independence and the Constitution at a time when they were enslaving Africans. Jefferson's word, uh, principle of self-evident truths, he was a slave owner. And Dr. King said that this is problematic and it speaks to this history of the ambivalent nation, a nation that preaches one thing, and practices something that is antithetical to what it preaches. So you notice in that chapter, I've talked a lot about Dr. King's image of the ambivalent nation and also the ambivalent personality as it relates to the founding fathers. Well, and I'm struck by this phrase, the ambivalent nation, and I'm aware that you utilize another phrase in that chapter, and I'm not sure if it's your phrase or King's phrase, but you talk almost as if the nation itself has a kind of schizophrenia, a kind of split personality. Dr. King's term, he used those terms interchangeably. The ambivalence, schizophrenia, the dilemma, these are terms that he used to really characterize the history of a nation that had not lived up to its founding principles, that it preached democratic values and principles, rather, while holding Africans in bondage or while committing genocidal acts against Native people. That thought runs through his sermons and mass meeting speeches. And up until the time he was assassinated, he advanced this notion of the ambivalent nation or this image of the ambivalent nation, that we had to overcome that in order to be true to what we said on paper, he says. We put on paper all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have to be true to what we said on paper. Otherwise, we will never overcome this image, this historic image of being 
an ambivalent nation. Professor Baldwin, I want to stay with this idea for just a moment because I'm intrigued by it. So when we use the word ambivalence over against the word schizophrenic or schizophrenia, there's a friction there that I want to explore. Because when someone is ambivalent about something, you and I may have differing intellectual opinions about something and have an ambivalence about that. But when we use phrases like schizophrenia, we're now using a kind of clinical language exactly. where it's not simply a difference of opinion or a difference of, in, of intellectual holdings, but now it's almost something like an illness, almost, sickness, almost yeah. as if the nation can't help itself. Am I understanding that correctly? Well, uh, not so much. Yeah, but I think he was saying that there is a sickness in this country, and he often used the word sickness. And it's reflected in the entire history of this country. Our unwillingness to deal with issues of race, of economic injustice, of violence. And I think he was used the way schizophrenia to, to suggest that it was not simply enacting in anti antithetical ways to what we preach, but that it was in depth, a sickness in the soul. He often used words like moral decay and spiritual death to describe this, that we are approaching moral decay, uh, spiritual death. And he was speaking of a particular sickness in the spirit, in the soul of the nation. And that term schizophrenia, I think, suggests that. This use of the word sickness, I'm struck by this because now I think of Matthew 25. If we are going to live the Christian commands that Jesus gives us, if we are confronted with a sick person, we are obligated to care for that sick person, to help that sick person come back to health, because that sick person is, as Matthew 25 says, is Christ. And so this brings us back now to this undergirding of love. It's not simply that you and I are in different opinions about how America should be arranged. It is that your way of thinking about the way that America should be arranged, Jefferson and those who fall into this ambivalence, you are manifesting a kind of sickness that demands my attention to help you heal. Am I understanding right. that correctly? You're understanding it correctly. And this is why Dr. King chose as the motto of his Southern Christian Leadership Conference to redeem and say, or save the soul of America. He was talking about dealing with this sickness. The movement was about not only exposing the sickness, but helping America to overcome this sickness through practical lessons of love and nonviolence. This is what Dr. King was thinking. What strikes me about that is when we think about the manifestation of practical violence, you're framing it in such a new way for me because I would have thought before that these were sort of cartoon villains, that these were people who just liked doing things evil and twisting their mustaches. But what I'm hearing you saying is instead, King saw these people not as villains, but rather as people who were sick. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. that he had an obligation to them, not simply to make the nation better for people that looked like him, but to make the nation better for their sake as well. Am I exactly. understanding that correctly? It was about not only the salvation of the oppressed, but the oppressor as well. To redeem the soul of America, to save the soul of America. He talked a lot about that that he wanted to change the country for the better. 
to deal with this sickness. And he also said that it's about changing the hearts of people. He said that you can pass all the laws you want, but you can never make people love on the basis of laws. You have to appeal to the heart. And this is what the civil rights movement was about. It was about not only offering practical lessons in democracy, but an effort to appeal to the hearts of people, to change the hearts of people, because he realized that you must first change the hearts of people before that can translate into what? The transformation of the social, political, and economic order. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Louis V. Baldwin. He's Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books dealing with the legacy and thought of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King, Jr. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're delighted today to be speaking with Louis V. Baldwin. He is Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University. He's the author of a number of books dealing with the thought and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Today we're talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King, Jr. Well, before the break, we were talking about this quest that the Reverend Dr. King had to redeem the soul of America. And with that phrase, redeeming the soul of America, I now want to connect it back to this idea of truth that runs through the spine of your book. Because if I'm understanding correctly, the way that we redeem the soul of America is by speaking truth to each other, speaking truth to power, certainly, but also speaking truth one to another. Help us unpack how democracy and politics and our, our very relationships with one another are made more fully real, more actualized, are made better by truth. Help to connect those dots mm-hmm. for us. And Dr. King was also talking about exposing the truths about America, about who we are, about our history and our heritage. That's very important. And when he talked about the new advancing truth represented by the movement, this is part of what he had in mind, that we are exposing truths about our country and, co- and challenging our nation around this need to live up to what it calls self-evident truth. I should also point out that Dr. King felt that truth is the lifeblood of democracy. And he felt that as long as segregation existed, that as long as economic injustice and violence existed on large scales, that this was a threat to our principles of self-evident truth that democracy and truth were interrelated, that true democracy has to exist on a foundation of truth. He was quite clear about that. It has to have that solid foundation of moral and spiritual values, and truth is important in that regard. Let me see if I've understood this correctly. So the truth here is multi-layered that we're talking about. One layer of this truth is we have to be able to speak the truth about what our nation has been. 
that it, ha- it has been this ambivalent nation, this schizophrenic nation, says one thing on paper, does another thing in practice. The paper looks great. The practice is violent. That's one layer of truth. A second layer of truth, if I'm, un- if I'm understanding it, is I have to have the liberty to be able to say to you, to those in power, this is my need. This is what I need in order to survive, to thrive, to be fully myself, and to be able to speak that and that in the history of America, we have chosen groups of people and we have silenced their ability to speak that truth. And so what I'm understanding in what you're saying is that truth is not just in the speaking, but truth is also in the ability to hear. The, Do, the am ability, I making that connection yeah, correctly? Exactly. And the ability to hear and the, and the ability to act and to live in accordance with certain kinds of value. You're understanding that quite correctly, Yes. And so if we are forbidden from living these certain types of values, then we're not really being a democracy and we're not really living in freedom. That there are certain things that are categorically necessary in order for us to be what we say we are. That in order for us to be a democracy, in order for us to say that we are the land of the free, we actually have to be able to, as a country, listen to the vulnerable when they say, this is what I want, this is what I need, and this historically is what you haven't given me. Is that correct? Yes, you have to listen to the truth-telling of the vulnerable and how they speak truth to power is very, very important. That has to be embraced, understood, and taken seriously, yeah. Well, now I want to turn to the sixth chapter in your book, because this is where you begin to look at the legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in light of the last 30 years and what we might call the erosion of truth or the post-truth era. And so what I want to have our listeners follow is we've been talking about Dr. King's experiments in how to achieve truth in democracy. And if I'm understanding the thesis of that sixth chapter, we never quite got to that place where we were all speaking truth and actualizing each other to each other, but rather power decided it was going to skip over that part and simply say, well, truth no longer matters. Do I understand that correctly or would you say it in a different way? Yes, this is what the post-truth age is all about, according to historians and social and cultural critics who use that term has been in vogue since at least as far back as 1992, when a Serbian-American playwright by the name of Steve Tessic used that term in 1992 in an article in Nation magazine. And it simply means that there has been a gradual breakdown Uh, There is a gradual breakdown of shared understandings of what constitutes truth and untruth. We are living in times when even objective truths and scientific facts are in question. And this is what the post-truth age means, that we no longer have a shared understanding of what constitutes truth, untruth, reality, unreality, rationality, and irrationality. In other words, lying is no longer uh, a deviation from the norm. It has become the norm itself. And this is what post-truth theorists are talking about. And many of them argue that the presidency of Donald Trump and Trumpism not only are a symptom of this post-truth age, but an accelerant of this age, where, um, according to one endorser of my book, Lying has been elevated to a new art form, not only by politicians and radio and talk 
t- uh, TV talk show hosts, but also by uh, religious leaders. It seems that we've come to a point where we in America live in a different reality. It's hard to bring people to a place of reality when they choose absolutely not to face reality. And post-truth theorists are writing about this today. And I think Dr. King is relevant to this discussion because he talks so much about the power of truth-telling and truth-sharing and also about the need, the moral obligation to speak truth to power. I think Dr. King challenges us to recreate a culture that not only cherishes and elevates truth, but also demands truth. And this is very important. This is what I've tried to get across in that last chapter, how this post-truth age is impacting how we remember and celebrate Dr. King. Many on the right of course, misuse or they distort King's legacy in defense of their own vision, their own right-wing conservative vision for America and their right-wing agenda for America. King had become a useful symbol, a, a, a sacred arm used in the defense of the right-wing conservative agenda and vision for America. Well, and this was one of the things that really struck me about that sixth chapter. You begin to talk about Dr. King, the man, and Dr. King, the mythology, and that that mythology can be very useful to certain people who want to basically take the fangs out of King's thought and instead just use King as a a sort of veneer to put over whatever sort of social position they want to have. And you say this is not just something that happens on the right wing, but also If I'm understanding correctly, there are certain members of King's extended family that participate in this as well. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, especially his niece, Alveda King, who is a Republican and uh, was a strong supporter of President Donald Trump. Yes, I think there's a tendency to ignore Dr. King's essential radicalism, to reduce him to this harmless Southern Black Baptist pastor who localized nonviolence and redemptive suffering as the core of the Christian faith. So we ignore his essential radicalism. We ignore his, his thinking and his proclamations on Vietnam, his call for a radical redistribution of economic power, his uh, attacks on violence and war, and his view that war had become obsolete. We ignore that radical king, and we like to freeze him, as Vincent Harding says, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, making this I Have a Dream speech. But the king of 1963 who made the I Have a Dream speech was not the same king who in 1968, April 3rd, 1968, made the speech entitled I See the Promised Land. We are talking about a king who had become more radicalized, who was addressing more seriously the issues of international peace and economic justice. That is the king that we wish to ignore. We like to talk about the king who preached integration, rubbing shoulders and elbows, white and black children sitting together at the table of brotherhood. We are very comfortable with that king. 
but we are not comfortable with the king who took on the issues of international peace, who attacked capitalism, and who called for a radical redistribution of economic resources. Let me see if I can connect those dots for our listeners, because at the beginning of this segment, we were talking about the essential nature of truth-telling to democracy, that truth-telling and democracy were essentially related. I don't need to convince anybody. We can just look out the window and we can see that business interests, military interests, various types of political interests, they all want to suppress the voice of the vulnerable for the sake of their profits or for the sake of their particular goals and ends. So they are arrayed against this kind of truth-telling, this kind of fundamental truth-telling of the vulnerable that we're talking about. What I'm hearing you saying is that in 1968, Martin Luther King was looking looking at that and saying, we need to stand against the military-industrial complex as Christians. We need to stand against capitalism as Christians. We need to stand against these interests, not just because of their political goals, but because they are antithetical to truth. They are not only antithetical to truth, they are antithetical to the full realization of what Dr. King called the world house. That is, the fact, the fact of people realizing their essential oneness under God and transcending religious differences, political differences, cultural differences, to realize that we are essentially one. So uh, not only antithetical to truth, but antithetical to this vision of a completely integrated society and world based on love and justice, brotherhood, and human dignity. Well, and as an illustration of that sort of progression from 1963 to 1968, in 1963, the concern of Dr. King was organizing around the civil rights movement for racial justice. And in 1968, he was there in solidarity with the sanitation workers in Memphis organizing for economic justice. Do I recall that correctly? You're quite right. He had always talked about economic justice, but in the last three years of his life, 65 to 68, he bought a more explicit and a more radical assessment of what that economic justice meant. And it meant not only giving sanitation workers a better wage and allowing them the right to union organization, but it also meant dealing with economic injustice as a world problem. The fact that people in the Caribbean and Latin America and parts of Africa and Asia were victims of a, an unjust global economic structure rooted in capitalism. So this global vision was very, very important in those last three years of Dr. King's life. I'm struck by something in your sixth chapter as well, and you point out that one of the first acts that President Donald Trump did in his time in office was to recognize the 50th anniversary of the death of Dr. King, and to, and he made several trips, apparently, to the memorial to Dr. King down in Georgia. And so I'm curious how you assess the way in which Donald Trump has embraced this legacy of Dr. King but has missed some of the core message. What does that mean to you? Well, it, well, he made several trips to the monument in Washington, D.C., and I think one to Atlanta, but I think he claims to embrace it in, in principle, but not in practice, obviously. 
because Dr. King argued and, and Donald Trump had referred to himself as a moral leader. Dr. King often, of course, regarded himself as a moral leader. But Dr. King believed that truth-telling is essential to moral leadership and prophetic leadership, that leadership that is transformational. He always said that if you're going to be a moral leader, you got to tell the truth. And not only that, you got to be able to speak truth to power. But I think that is missing in our analysis of Trumpism. So I think former President Trump said during his time in office that he understood Dr. King and he valued Dr. King's moral leadership. I think he was not, in terms of practice, in line with what Dr. King saw as the image of the moral leader. One who tells the truth, one who lives and acts on truth, and one who freely speaks truth to power. Well, Professor Baldwin, in your book, you have pointed out that we are really very much in the throes of this post-truth era. And there are those who are very invested in us not getting back to a place of shared truth, of objective truth, of really working towards that kind of ethic of love that you spoke about at various points in our conversation. And so I'm wondering, are you hopeful or optimistic in this time about what comes next? How can the thought of the Reverend Dr. King help us out of the mess that we're in right now? How does the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King speak to us today? Well, I'm hopeful at times, and at other times, I feel a bit pessimistic because of what's happening at the highest levels of our political life. Lying has become the norm. Truth-telling seems not to be valued anymore. Power, and this, it's, this line has, is fueling political violence, political the threats of people who serve on school boards, who uh, healthcare workers, and even politicians and law enforcement, FBI, all with the potential for violence. And that's unsettling. That's, that makes me a bit pessimistic. But Dr. King taught us, and he often said, that truth crushed to earth will rise again, that no lie can live forever, quoting Thomas Carlyle. And he believed that truth would ultimately triumph. And this is what the cross and the resurrection meant to him. That we may, we all have our crosses in life. We all have our Good Fridays. But we also have our Easter Sunday mornings when there's victory over the cross. And the cross is victorious and triumphant. And he left us with that message of hope. And he lived in dark times himself when there was the white backlash in the latter years of his life. He said at points that his dream had often turned into a nightmare. But in his last, very last message on April 3rd, 1968, there's a note of hope that we will reach the promised land, that truth will ultimately triumph that the long arc of truth is always bending and swinging in the direction of a better society and a better world. So I live with that hope that he left us with. Well, Professor Lewis Baldwin, I am so grateful for your book, The Arc of Truth, 
the thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. I came into your book thinking that I understood King and his thought. You you said, yes, you understand it, David, but you gave me so many more vistas and so many more facets to consider, aspects and connections that I had not seen before. This is a tour de force, and I know that it is the culmination of a lot of thinking on your part. Thank you so much for taking the time to write this book, but thank you especially for taking time today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you for inviting me on. We've been speaking today with Louis V. Baldwin. He's Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the author of a number of books on the life, legacy, and thought of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Today, we've been talking about his most recent book, The Ark of Truth, The Thinking of Martin Luther King, Jr. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.